Hello, and welcome to When It Goes Wrong, the podcast exploring disasters, accidents, and times when everything falls apart. I'm Jasmine, your host, and on this episode, we'll be discussing Bernie Madoff, who caught, who was caught in 2008 running the largest Ponzi scheme in history. He scammed almost $64 billion out of thousands of investors around the world. I'll then finish with a little Q&A uh, to celebrate this being my one-year anniversary of the podcast. If you want to stick around for that, you can. Um, if not, and you're just interested in the content, uh, then yeah, I'll cover all of Bernie Madoff first, don't worry. <laughs> Very quickly, before I get into it, a uh, reminder to follow me on Instagram. Uh, I'm at when it goes wrong pod, and also a reminder to rate or review on whatever device or app you're currently listening on. Spotify recently introduced their ratings. Uh, thank you to everyone that's rated so far, and yeah, I'd really appreciate a, a star rating on there. Right, so Bernie Madoff. This was like one of those I I never planned on doing an episode of Bernie Madoff, but then recently I just got sucked in down the rabbit hole reading everything about him and listening to stuff and watching stuff, and so I thought, why not? Why not put it all into into an episode um, and and really dig into it? Because obviously I'd heard of him, but I didn't really follow it very much and I also thought it happened ages ago but it it didn't well I mean 2008 is ages ago but it's much more recent than I thought and I think I don't know if I did cover it in the Theranos episode but in the Theranos episode Elizabeth Holmes allegedly uh, refers to Madoff as in in some kind of cryptic note maybe he she's not going to be caught like Madoff type thing so yeah it's it's kind of popped up popped up there which I think maybe got me interested in it but anyway, a bit of background to, to Bernie himself. So Bernie was born in 1938 in Queens to a small family and he, he didn't come from money. So he didn't start off uh, coming from, from a wealthy family. And he also didn't start off as, as any kind of super savant or anything. He, well, he was on top of the class. He wanted to go to uni, but ended up going to the University of Alabama because it was easier for him to get into. Uh, but he did eventually transfer back to a New York uni and graduated with a BSc in political science. And he, at this point, considered law school, but eventually he decided that he wanted to go into the investment business and make some money. Uh, obviously, Wall Street was was developing at this time, and it was yeah an exciting exciting place to be. And he wanted to to bring in bring in the cash. So in 1960, he set up Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, uh, which is um, commonly known more as BLMIS. But blemis, blmis, and so he set up that that firm, and he yeah started started doing investment work. And so I'm going to talk a bit about investments. I'm not shockingly an investment banker, and so I kind of understand some of it. Don't understand a lot of it. So we will we'll we'll try as hard as we can to to understand the the ins and outs of of investment uh, strategy. So at the beginning, Bernie was a legitimate investment trader and he started off in what was known as the penny stocks back then, which is basically where small companies would trade uh, for, for very low amounts, uh, less than a dollar. And he acted as a broker, so he would act on behalf of others and would make trades for them. And that was how he started building up his money. 
And he was quite successful at this. And he soon, he got a loan from his family and he also got $100,000 from Carl Shapiro to increase his business. And Carl Shapiro would then end up being someone that he eventually worked with for for his entire career uh, and who who gave Bernie billions to manage, basically, but started him off with 100 grand, which in those days must have been a lot of money as well. Uh, and he did a lot of, a lot of very well with that, with the kind of standard what you expect with investments, investing in stocks when they're low, selling when they're high, trying to make some money and some good returns. He eventually moved more towards something called arbitrage, which I did read about. I'm not going to be able to explain it properly to you. Google it if you want to. But I think it's basically trading on lots of different exchanges. uh, And this helps to, to decrease risk. And so as he got better and better at making money, his friends and family started investing with him. And they also started recommending friends to invest with him. So he started getting bigger and bigger and started investing all this money on behalf of other people. And he, his firm got bigger and bigger. He got his family involved. He got his brother Peter, joined him in 1970. And one of the things that BLMIS... I feel like it has a better acronym name, but I just don't know what it is. I feel, and I've definitely heard it in something else, but I can't, BLM, BL Miss, I don't know. Well, forget that out. BLMIS decided to get involved and they decided to get involved in tech relatively early on and use technology to improve their gains. And that was, that was kind of their, their big selling point was that they were going to really invest in, in new things and, and change how things were working. And they were pretty successful at this actually. And they made technology to allow trades. And what happened is that eventually the technology that they made uh, went on to to form part of what's now known as the NASDAQ, uh, which most people will have heard of, is one of the stock exchanges, New York Stock Exchanges, which is huge today. And as part of helping to, to build this technology and helping to form the NASDAQ, he really built his persona up. So he really was very well respected in Wall Street because of this. He ended up sitting as the chair of the board of the NSD board, which is like the, the firm that's that's close to the NASDAQ. And yeah, he, he sat on the board for, for three separate terms. So he was really seen as someone that was very legitimate and he really grew his persona as part of this work. But I guess his his key thing in in this building of his his empire was he was just very much he built this persona as, as being seen as someone who was really just naturally good at investing that he really knew when what to invest in when to change uh, how to get the returns and how to get really stable returns and he really grew this this kind of persona. But one of the other things that he managed to do, which really helped him grow at this point, was that he was, he kind of made it quite an exclusive club. So you couldn't just go and sign up, you know, it wasn't, wasn't like a bank. You had to be invited, you know, someone had to connect you in and then sometimes he would say no and then maybe the next time he'd say yes. And so it really felt like when you invested with Bernie that you were kind of going into this really exclusive area where he was just going to make all this money for you. And that obviously drove drove demand uh, and, and people wanted it even more.
so yeah, so he's starting to to grow and grow. And at this point, we we're assuming 60s, 70s, 80s that he is a legitimate trader. He's actually making trades, doing what we expect him to do. And we just don't know when he decided to change from a legitimate business to a giant fraud, <laughs> which we'll cover in lots of detail, but it's certainly at some point in this journey, and he kind of says in the 90s, but people debate that, where he basically changed to running a giant Ponzi scheme, <laughs> which is, I think because he started legitimate and then it kind of transformed into that, maybe that's why people didn't notice as much. But yeah, at some point it it changed. And what that meant was that what a Ponzi scheme is, is basically where you it's like a big pyramid scheme right so the people that invest early get to make lots of returns but they don't get returns through like investment they get returns from getting new investors and new people into the company so if you joined first then you would every time someone new joins you would get kind of returns which would just be their money so it it kind of flows the money up so basically that that kind of saying of robbing peter to pay paul that's that's what a ponzi scheme is is yeah you you have to continually get new investors into into the scheme so that then you keep getting more money in and then you can keep kind of paying the higher levels uh, but eventually someone is going to lose and it requires continual continual getting new investors in at, at all points and so at some point he why he kind of changed to this i don't know maybe he didn't didn't do particularly well on some trades and so decided to oh that we've got this new investor you know like let's use his money just to pay these people back whilst we try and build up again and then it just kind of went went totally off from there i don't know but i think i i think that would be easy to believe that at some point they decided that they couldn't they couldn't give the returns that they were promising. And so therefore they were like, oh, we'll just use this money. And then it just grew and grew from there. And at some point it truly did turn into a full Ponzi scheme. So at some point, uh, Bernie just stopped trading completely and just totally made up everything. So it turned from potentially a little bit of fraud into a lot of fraud. And so what he would do is he would always guarantee his investors a set return, which to me, I think would be a huge red flag uh, because no one can guarantee a set return, but he would, yeah, say to his investors, oh, I will guarantee you a set return, usually somewhere kind of like 10, 12, 16%. But in order to provide this return, he then basically relied on getting new people in and new money. So then he could pay pay the investors, like I said. And so he had to just keep getting more and more people involved. And in order to do this, he worked with many other people in what's called a feeder fund. And the idea with a feeder fund is that different stockbrokers would set up this fund and people would invest into it, but they wouldn't really know who was kind of running the fund. So they would think potentially that who, you know, the broker that they've talked to is running the fund, but in reality, it would be run by Madoff. So there were hundreds, thousands of these feeder funds, which potentially on on first glance, if you invested in them, you wouldn't realise that they were going to Madoff. But in fact, behind the scenes, they were... And he had a really close circle of brokers who worked for him, pushing these funds and getting investments. 
And two key men uh, in relation to these investments were uh, someone called Frank Avellino and Mike Bienes, and we'll come to them soon. But they had a very successful feeder fund. Uh, we're talking something like $400, $500 million uh, that they were getting from their investors that they were then passing on to Madoff to invest with little quotation marks uh, for them, uh, when in reality, he wasn't doing anything with it. So... Madoff kind of continued to grow and grow through these feeder funds and continued to to pull the wool over everyone's eyes, mainly because he was able to keep paying these returns. So why would anyone look too closely at it? And he expanded overseas because obviously he needed to continue getting people involved, getting people into the into the scheme and and there's only a finite number of people, so time to time to get overseas and he opened offices in London and around the world. And he was just really successful. It was because I think he had such a a good reputation, but also he was getting these kind of consistent, if not huge, returns. People wanted in. People wanted in, and they wanted in this exclusive club. And yeah, it just it just the money kept piling in. So we're talking billions, billions, and billions of dollars he was managing. Uh, Well, managing again in quotation marks. And he, yeah, he seemed to just kind of stay under the radar through all of this, probably because, like I said, he, he was returning 10, 12%, which potentially some other firms were were a lot more volatile, but, you know, might return up to 50% at some point and then, and then drop it down, whereas he was just kind of this consistent 10%. So it wasn't huge numbers, so people didn't really worry about it, but because they were so consistent, he just managed to keep on going. And another thing he did, which was very typical of a Ponzi, was that he kept everything really secret. And obviously because he is he was such a well-esteemed man and he had been around for so long, people didn't really question this. But he, yeah, kind of didn't, re- didn't reveal to anyone exactly how he was making his returns. And that makes sense because he is running a business. He doesn't want other people to copy him. Lots of other businesses do that and won't won't tell you why or how they're making this money. So people kind of didn't didn't question that. But in reality, it, it was perfect for him, right? Because so, he didn't need to. He was just like, oh, I'm not telling you because that's how I make all my money and that's a trade secret. In reality, he didn't have a trade secret he just had a giant fraud so yeah he always he always kind of said that it was in his business to keep it secret and people eventually kind of stopped asking because they were like i get my return who cares how he does it Uh, as you can expect he didn't do all of this alone so his firm continued to grow and it, it essentially as it got bigger and bigger was kind of split into two and they did seem to have like a legitimate business arm that was trading and was making money in in normal ways but then they had the fraud scheme that that sat underneath it and that was running kind of totally separately and in the building that they ran they each had separate floors so one the kind of legitimate business had this like normal trading floor where people and investors could come in see it see a real business and then the floor below that was the floor where they made everything up (laughs) where the the ponzi was run from so it was like just beneath them uh where they could yeah just like make all these all these computer programs that would help to manage the fraud where they could create the return 
taken like letters and stuff that said what had been made all this kind of stuff and so you know the the floor below was like very secretive and only certain people were allowed there because they were all the people that actually knew about the ponzi and were helping run it uh and then yeah up above the the actual legitimate floors and so he got his brother Peter. Uh, he was involved and was was kind of head of running the the Ponzi. And then he also had another man, uh, his partner in crime, Frank Di Pascali, who was also very much involved throughout all that time. And the thing is, is that they just put so. What I found stunning was the amount of effort they put into the fraud. I feel like if they had put the same amount of effort into just making money in a legitimate way, they probably would have done it. But the amount of effort they put into to turning this fraud into reality was so big. So basically, he would get the money from the investors and he would just put it into a normal bank account. So he'd just put it into a normal bank account and the money would just sit there. He wouldn't do anything with it. And so if anyone then wanted a return or the you know the earlier investor wanted a return, he was just able to pay out of that bank account from the new people that had come in. Obviously, that meant that the money kind of steadily decreased unless there was more and more investors. But what they did was that they started not only doing returns, but they started like faking how they were making money. So they would make these like fake statements that said what trades they made. And what they would do is they would look at the trades from like the day before and then kind of make up what which ones they did in order to make the money. So, you know, like if yesterday... Apple stocks went up by 50%. They'll be like, yeah, we we sold this many <laughs> Apple stocks and made this amount of money, which they obviously could do perfectly because they were doing everything in, in hindsight. And so what they would do on this floor is they'd make all these return statements based on trades done in the past that hadn't actually happened, put them together on an investment statement, and then post these investment statements out to their investors. And even though most investors were used to email, they were like, no, we do everything by post. And because they did everything by post, obviously, it was a bit slower to get there. And so when you finally got your investment statement and you opened it up, it seemed perfectly legitimate that a week ago they did a, a, a stock trade on Apple on this date because that makes sense. Why Why would you question it? And so, yeah, they just did stuff like that kind of constantly or like, like just faking all these records, faking uh, continual kind of statements and strategies. And this is how we're doing it. We're doing these split strike conversions and this is what that means. And they just, yeah, it was so immense what they were doing. They did like software so that like it looked like they were doing trades but the trades actually weren't happening they just did loads and loads of stuff to to keep this ponzi alive and because they were making loads of money out of it and i think that they had you know like software engineers and stuff working for the ponzi but they were getting paid millions in in bonuses and stuff so i'm sure they knew it was wrong <laughs> but for that amount of money that they were making they they went along with it so yeah, basically by the 1990s, he was not making any legitimate trades, putting all the money in the Chase bank account, and it was just sitting there. But the big question for me is how did he get away with it? For li- I mean, we're talking decades here. We obviously don't know when he started, but we're assuming at 1990, 
We're talking at least 18 years he got away with this. And a lot of people think he did it a lot sooner when he, he started the firm in the 60s. So how did he get away with it? So like I said, a lot of it relied on Madoff standing and his ability to fake records. And he just had this persona of trust and of esteem in the in the society that he was in that people went with it and there was a good quote in by Michael Bienes uh, in a 2009 interview and he said uh, doubt Bernie Madoff doubt Bernie no you doubt God you can doubt God but you don't doubt Bernie he had that aura about him which I thought was good because I think that that is what really people thought people really trusted him and he had that aura of authority and esteem around him that that made him get away with it. But the firm itself was investigated at least eight times by the SEC at the Securities and Exchange Commission, but they just didn't really seem to dig deep enough to really see what was happening. And like I said, they put so much effort into the fraud and the fraud was so sophisticated that really they just didn't really know what they were looking for. And it was it was so complicated because if you in another interview, I think with BNS, you know, they were like, oh, how do you think he made his money? And he was like, I don't know how Madoff made his money. Like, he used to just kind of tell me all these, like, really complicated trading strategies and I just went with it, which I can understand. And I think from from an SEC perspective, potentially it was the same thing. They were like, well, he's doing all this fancy stuff. That sounds reasonable. But alongside that, I think that there was just, it was almost so big, you just couldn't believe it was a fraud and it couldn't even enter your imagination. Do you know what I mean? I think it it was just so big that when you went to investigate them, maybe you'd try and, you know, you you were looking for something a little, you know, one rogue trader or something like that was was kind of small and and maybe bending the rules here and there. But it just wouldn't even enter your imagination to go this huge investment firm that's literally the biggest hedge fund in the world, that's managing billions of dollars is is all fake. <laughs> and I and I get that because it, it's just the the standing and the reputation, I think. So they like I said they kind of found smaller bits. So in one of the early investigations, the SEC focused on Avelino and BNS who were running that huge feeder fund for Madoff. And what happened with Avelino and BNS is that neither of them had registered as like investment advisors or whatever they were meant to be registered as. And so the SEC ordered the firm shut down. And so, again, they were kind of like not getting involved with like the huge overarching business, but getting involved in these in these smaller areas where they could see little things wrong. And so what they did was they ordered the firm shut, but they ordered all the money had to be paid back to the investors. And that was clearly an issue for Madoff because he was the one who was actually running the funds again in quotation marks for running the funds but he hadn't had been doing anything with it and suddenly he had to pay back 400 million from other to to these investors in order to shut down the firm and i assume you know he wasn't particularly liquid in terms of his assets because he was constantly paying people out and trying to get more people in but somehow he managed to find the 400 million at that point from probably from other investors from other feeder funds that had invested and paid all of them back from Avelino and Bienes but ironically it was actually a bit of a win for Madoff as a lot of the investors who had invested with Avelino Bienes 
didn't know that it was actually made off running it behind the scenes. And so once they shut down that firm, Madoff basically went to the same investors and was like, hey, do you want to actually invest directly with me? Uh, and many of them moved and just moved their, their money back to Madoff, but without this kind of middleman in between. So yeah, SEC is kind of floating about, not really finding anything. Yeah, just not, not doing their job, to be honest. And so at this point, we're going to enter our, our whistleblower, Harry Markopoulos. And Harry worked for another firm and he seems to be very, very smart. <laughs> he was a quant. He was, yeah, really good at maths and investing and strategies and all this kind of stuff. And his firm basically asked him to understand how Bernie was making such consistent returns so that they could try and do the same thing. So they said to him, can you go and take Madoff's results reverse engineer them and figure out what he's doing, you know, what his strategy is, who he's investing with, when, all that type of stuff. And so Marco Polis sat down just one afternoon in his office and tried to, to reverse engineer this. And what he figured out in one afternoon was that no matter what, he could not make the returns that Madoff was making. It was mathematically impossible for Madoff to be making the returns that he was saying he was making. And he tried everything, tried to to look at what different methods, different things, but he could not make it work. And he knew, Marco Polis knew at that point, something is wrong. Bernie Madoff is not legit. He also looked back at Bernie's trades uh, and his performance over the years. And it was stunning that he, I think it was only like seven times they didn't make a good, the return they promised every other time that they, they did the return that they said they would, which is exceptional considering how much the, the market fluctuates. And so Marco Polis knew there, there was two options at this point. He knew either Madoff was insider trading, so was, uh, you know, working with firms to, to find out things early so that then he could make a trade and, and win off that or he was running a giant Ponzi scheme and and it only took Marco Polis one afternoon to figure that out um but uh unfortunately no one listened to him so he went back to his firm and said you know this is all big fraud his firm were like oh well clearly you just can't figure it out he's you know he must have some super amazing strategy that no one can understand and so Marco Polis kind of went above their heads, went to the SEC and went to them with his concerns. And he reported it several times and in lots of detail, uh, sent them like pages and pages of reports that proved why it, why it was this, how it was impossible. But the SEC kind of just kept saying, no, look, we've already investigated him. We haven't found anything. He's fine. Because they just never went into the detail, never like dug into it as much as they should have. So how did we, how are we here? How are we talking about this now? Um, if the SEC never figured out what was going on? Well, what caused the end was the 2008 financial crisis. So the financial crisis obviously hit in 2008 due to, well, am I going to explain the 2008 financial crisis in this, in this episode? Probably not. Uh, subprime mortgages, that type of thing. Uh, and what that meant was in 2008, obviously it hit the banks. Uh, a lot of firms went bust. Uh, the government had to do lots of bailouts and the stock market basically crumbled. And that was the case across all firms. It was just awful time to be investing. And basically huge numbers of Madoff's investors wanted, wanted out. They wanted their money back. They wanted to take it out of stocks. They wanted to 
there's always in times of volatility you usually want to take your cash out of out of more risky investments put them into into more stable things and so there were just all these people that wanted out and made off just knew he couldn't pay them all. He basically owed billions and billions of dollars to these investors, but he only had only only had hundreds of millions in the bank and he just couldn't do it. He just couldn't he couldn't meet meet the demands that that were asked of him and he tried in the final weeks to kind of raise more money to to get more money in in order to attempt to to pay people out but like i said it was the financial crash no new investors really wanted to get involved so he just couldn't do it and the banks weren't lending he just had no options left the money the money was gone and so he he made off basically just knew that 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 was the end that he had finally hit the the point of failure and he at this point he's like into his 70s he's been running this for decades and i'm guessing he was probably just just exhausted imagine lying that much for that long i just couldn't oh it's just awful so what Madoff does is he took his two sons who had worked for the business, but on the legitimate side, so on the side that uh, actually did real work, uh, and he basically told them everything's fake and and it's all it's all gone. And that I mean the kids couldn't believe it. They were just and you know I say kids are like in their forties and fifties just couldn't believe it. They'd been working there for so long. They never suspected this. They couldn't understand why he'd done it all of that type of thing. They were utterly horrified. And so Bernie kind of said to them, look, I'm going to hand myself in. I just need a few days. I'm just going to wrap up, uh, wrap up the work I've been doing. And and then, yeah, I'm going to hand myself in. But the two sons were actually so kind of horrified by the confession that they immediately went to the FBI and they were like, I can't believe this. Um, you need to, you need to go and arrest my father, which they then went and did. And yeah, there was a good quote in one of the things that I read because I think the question for this, for me, was really like, why? Why did he do this? I'm, I get maybe at the beginning he just wanted to get some returns and make sure that he looked like he was making a lot of money, but what then prompted for it to go on for so long? And yeah, the the quote, I had more than enough money to support any of my lifestyle and my family's lifestyle. I didn't need to do this for that, he told Fishman, adding, I don't know why. The legitimate wings of the business were extremely lucrative. That's what I don't get. Like, he he didn't need to do this. It was just, I don't know whether it was just a, a hole he dug himself in that he couldn't dig himself out of, or, yeah, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. If you get it, email me, tell me why. <laughs> but Madoff eventually pleaded guilty, and he was sentenced to 150 years in prison. He totally pled guilty and didn't implicate anyone else in his schemes. Uh, so he just said it was all him. No, no one else was involved. Uh, but others, thankfully, did end up getting prosecuted and were sentenced anywhere from one year to 10 years in prison. Dee Pascali, who was the other kind of main man running the scheme, was also expected to get a very long, long charge. But he died of lung cancer before he was sentenced. 
Madoff, once he went to prison, did somewhat of an apology to his victims. He had a quote which was, I have left a legacy of shame, as some of my victims have pointed out, to my family and my grandchildren. This was something I will live in for the rest of my life. I'm sorry. I know that doesn't help you. Not not the best apology, I would say. I don't feel... You know, I mean, but then is there anything he can say that would make would would be a good apology? I don't know. It just doesn't even seem genuine. Yeah, not not great. And so some of the investors got some of their money back. So obviously, what was left kind of got divvied out. Uh, but they also managed to to get some returns from from other investors that then had to pay some of the money back. Uh, but a lot of them ended up with nothing. A lot of his victims. Uh, they think at the end that he defrauded around $36 billion uh, and around $18 billion was recovered. So yeah, still a lot of money outstanding and a lot of money that would not go back to his victims. Moving forward then from 2008, from once he was in prison, uh, Madoff was totally abandoned by his family. Uh, they all could not believe what he did. Uh, and then he, uh, one of his sons that he had told committed suicide and blamed it on him. Uh, and the other died of cancer soon after and also blamed the cancer relapsing because of him. Yeah, very, very hard times for him after. And he made off eventually died alone in prison in April 2021. So earlier this year uh, at the age of 82. So, yeah, it's not like a satisfying ending. Do you know what I mean? It's not like a satisfying, he got what was coming to him because he was already so old that he was only in prison for about, what, the 12, 13 years? Um, and from other quotes I've read, I think he had a bit of a cushy time when he was in prison as well. So, yeah, it, it's the the scale of this, I think, is what stunned me. And obviously, like, I'd heard of him, but I just, I, I hadn't gone into the details of this at all. I think maybe because it, it came to a head when the financial crisis was going on, the financial crisis took more of my, more of my interest rather than, rather than this. But yeah, just absolutely astounding what he managed to get away with and how big it managed to get. In terms of what we learnt, the SEC obviously were like, well, we we did a terrible job here. And so they did a lot of work to change how they would run investigations and also change kind of regulations for what they would look at. I will put a link in the references to something that goes into the details of what they changed. It's all very investment um, investment heavy in terms of the what they've done. So I won't go into all the details, but I can safely assume that they have got better at their job, which is what we wanted. Uh, they also went through a restructure uh, and they also set up a electronic store for, for tips and, and for whistleblowing uh, and kind of said that they would look into them more in the future, which I would hope that they they did. And uh, Marco Polis was finally kind of vindicated uh, in, in their internal review of what went wrong because they could see how much he had tried to get them to believe that this is what was happening and how much they had failed to listen to him, uh, which, yeah, not not ideal. Advice for you all, don't invest in a Ponzi scheme. If anyone promises you very set returns, it's probably not going to be a good thing to do. Stay stay financially safe, is my, 
It's my advice. Uh, so let's just talk a bit about references before I go into the Q&A. I listened to two very good podcast series on Bernie Madoff, which I very highly recommend. The first one is by American Scandal. Another one, they, they I really like all of that stuff. I've been really binging it recently, but they did a good four-part series on Bernie uh, where they did kind of recreations and that type of thing. So definitely recommend that. Uh, and there was also another two-parter by a podcast called Con Artists. Uh, again, another two really good episodes that went into a lot of detail as to as to what actually happened. There's also a very good Vanity Fair long read, which I will link in the references. And I, I struggled a little bit with documentaries and books. The books were all just really expensive, so I didn't buy any. So some of them might be good. Maybe one day I'll buy one and read one. But the documentaries, I struggled to find much. I think because... Netflix have just commissioned something, maybe for next year, so keep an eye out for that. And so, yeah, I watched, there's a PBS hour-long documentary on YouTube, which was pretty good. So, yeah, I recommend that if you want to watch something on it. Just, go, just like YouTube, Bernie made off, and it's like the first thing that comes up. So, yeah, recommend all of those. Oh, so if you are just interested in the in that bit of the episode, then thank you for listening. Um, if not, if you're sticking around for, for some more chats, then thank you. So first of all, yes, thank you. It's been a year of the podcast, which is kind of terrifying. I uh, can't believe 2021 has disappeared faster than I could have ever believed. But yeah, I just thought you listen you might have listened to me all year, so maybe maybe I'll talk a little bit more about the podcast and, and what I've been doing. And yeah, it's been, it's done well. I hit my Instagram target of 400 followers, which is very exciting. Uh, and I just hit 30,000 downloads. So thank you, every single person that downloaded any one of those. Right, I got a few questions, uh, a few about the podcast itself, a few about me and a few about the cat. Which are the best ones? The best questions. Start with the ones on the podcast itself. So I got a few questions around like, what is the research process? How long does it take to research each episode? What is the process of writing and producing the podcast? So research takes, obviously takes the, the largest bit of making this podcast, but I only ever do episodes on something I'm interested in and something that I probably would read and, and watch things about anyway. So it's never a chore. It's never like, oh, I need to sit down and do research. It's much more, oh, I'm really interested in this. I'm going to just sit in an evening and watch this thing, or I'm going to read this book, anything like that. My preference is generally to read a book about each of the topics that I do, and I'd say probably 75% of the of the episodes I've done I have read a book, just because I think it gets like more into the detail. You can get, as I have with 25% of my episodes, you can get enough stuff from online or watching and listening to stuff, but really getting into the detail, I, I enjoy doing. And so, yeah, it just kind of depends when I start reading and how how that will will run. Once I then know when an episode is coming up, so I might be reading lots of different things about lots of different topics. But when I finally decide, like, okay, this is the this is the episode I'm going to do next, then in the in the first week, because I release every two weeks, so in the first week I'll kind of up my my reading and also start writing. I write a, I say I write a script. It's 
I write a, a list of, of stuff I want to talk about and then I kind of talk around it. And so as I write that, often that will then kind of make me ask questions and maybe want to read and research research more. But yeah, it could be anything. It could be months of, of research for some stuff. It could it could be a couple of weeks if, if there's lots of good content out there. I think like MH370 uh, I did within a couple of weeks because there was so much stuff. But uh, next, for example, the next episode I want to do after this is going to be on uh, the opioid epidemic. And so I've been reading lots of stuff on that already. I've been reading a really good long read on it. Um, a book, <laughs> long read, a really good book on it, uh, which I started a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and then I've already watched like three documentaries on it and so I'll probably continue doing that um and then I've already started reading some kind of mountaineering books for some other stuff in future so yeah generally takes ages um, but it doesn't feel like work it just feels like an enjoying time so that's research then I uh, yeah I write it I record it like I am now recording is by far the quickest part of this um podcast process uh, it doesn't take me well it takes me the length of the podcast in order to record it and then I will edit it I'm not very good at editing I try my hardest it takes ages it takes kind of double or triple the length of the episode to edit it uh, I just listen to it cut out me stumbling over my words etc add music in uh, and then it's just really a case of scheduling it uh, and, and waiting for it to go up and then trying to promote it. <laughs> I would love to do more promotion and more uh, like sharing of the pod, but it's hard when you have, when it takes so long, first of all, to, to make the podcast but, and, and the fact that it's just me. Um, but also I obviously work full time and have other, other enjoyments in life. Uh, so yeah, it takes, takes a while. So that's about the podcast itself. Uh, then I had a couple about me. Um, oh, well, no, one more about the podcast. How long did you have the idea of doing a podcast? Is this your first? And the answer is yes, this is my first podcast. Um, I've always been really into podcasts for years and years and years. Since before podcasts were popular, uh, I moved from New Zealand to the UK and I originally got into podcasts because I could listen to New Zealand radio shows through the podcast app. Um, so that was like a bit of a bit of nostalgia from home so I would do that uh, and then I just started getting getting into into lots of lots of different different things answer me this that type of thing uh, and then obviously serial came out serial season one which yeah really ignited podcasting for for a lot more people and I was so glad that it did because I think it's such a great medium and serial was so good serial really upped the game and really inspired me to to want to do a podcast but I I don't know why I didn't I wish I had done one then because maybe I would have kind of hit it before the before the many many podcasts that have come out but I I was focused on other areas so obviously work but I also for a long time ran a lifestyle blog uh, and so I did that for some time. That kind of kept me busy, which put the idea of a podcast on the back foot. And then only recently I stopped doing the blog as that kind of fizzled out. And so I was like, right, I need a new a new project. So let's let's give this a go. And uh, it's it's been going well. So it's it's encouraged me to continue doing with it. A couple about me so what draws you to disasters specifically and have you ever been in a disaster yourself it's an interesting wasn't it isn't it I, I I do like disasters but I just generally find when it goes wrong is a good overarching term for 
anything that goes wrong. So like today, would you count Bernie as a disaster? Maybe. I'd probably if you're one of his victims, you would. And so I think what I find interesting about it is the people and the psychology of it all. Because it's always, a lot of it comes down to people's decision making and people's motivations. And I think that's what I find the most interesting. And then how people act in in the face of that. And so I think I much prefer episodes about that type of stuff. So things like the mountaineering disasters, things like these the like Theranos and and Bernie where where people have made decisions that have caused things MH370 that type of thing so I, I I'm those are my favorite types of episodes for sure cost to Concordia last week Titanic I struggle a little bit more with the natural disasters because I think that they're just sad um because they're and and they're harder to 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 enjoy I think so things like White Island uh things like Aberfan and and things like that so there's a few that I've considered doing but yeah I I think the natural disasters are the hardest ones because they aren't they don't have that people aspect and so I I just think they're sad rather than interesting (laughs) um obviously they're all sad but yeah uh, so that's kind of what draws me to them. And I don't know, I think that there is, I've always liked true crime. Uh, I think there's a lot of questions as to why people like true crime. And again, I think it's similar with the with the understanding of people's motivations, how people can do that. Uh, and then, you know, it contrasts to, to you, doesn't it? It contrasts to you and and what your life is. And, and there's a bit of, of gratefulness, I would hope, in there. And has have you ever been in a disaster yourself? Not really. Um, I think doing this and <laughs> listening to lots of true crime is maybe very disaster averse. I'm generally, yeah, not not a big fan of doing anything scary, <laughs> including flying, but I do it. Uh, I mean, I lived in New Zealand for a long time, so obviously I'm used to earthquakes and tsunami warnings and all that type of thing. But yeah, never been in a big disaster myself, thankfully. Long may it stay that way. And then I finally had a couple of questions about the cat, about Juniper, um, who you might have heard meowing in the background. I decided to put it out of the room this time because when I edited the last episode, I left in a couple of times where she like attacked me, but I ended up editing out about 20 times where I was like, the cat's attacking me, the cat's doing this. And so I was like, let's not do that this time because that's boring for you and, and hard for me to edit out. Um, so yeah, she's been in the other room. And so, yeah, I just got some questions about about her. So she's a ragdoll. She's very cute. Uh, we got her through a breeder. I have always wanted a cat. I love, I, I, I've always had cats growing up. I've always wanted a cat. I do highly recommend adopting and getting cats that way. But we've struggled with that in London because of the fact that we're in a flat we don't have outside space uh well we have some outside space but not really cat friendly outside space and so we struggled with uh, adopting i definitely want to adopt in future but the idea with the ragdoll was they have to be indoor cats and so we could get her and she would stay inside and also with a the ragdoll there greatest joy in life is spending time with people uh, rather than having kind of like a giant uh, territory to roam so yeah it worked it worked well for us in terms of where we live and and where our current life is uh, with both of us working from home we can spend lots and lots of time with her which makes her very happy uh, but yes I definitely will get a I will adopt in future when we're 
you know, maybe living in a house or somewhere with with actual outside space. But for now, yeah, we got her from a breeder. Uh, so she is a, a very fancy cat, but she is so cute and so tiny. And yes, and then I also got, why did you name your cat Juniper? I named my cat Juniper because I love gin. Um, my friend Erica came up with it. So I think it fits very well. So yeah, those are the questions I got asked. Uh, thank you for everyone that sent one in on Instagram. It was much appreciated. Thanks again, everyone, for listening to the podcast. Uh, I really hope that we can have an exciting 2022 uh, and yeah, have lots of new episodes coming out. So thanks for listening. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me again, you can follow me on Instagram at whenitgoeswrongpod or you can always drop me an email at whenitgoeswrongpod at gmail.com. <laughs>